0: Welcome to Cuba to You. This channel exists to bridge the gap between Cuban Americans and their heritage and introduce non Cubans to Cuban culture. Ordinarily, I'm on here talking about Cuban issues, um, raising awareness of Cuban politics or Cuban history, but today's episode will feature a little bit of a different spin. I'm excited to have with me a friend of mine, Antoine, who is a Christian, a black man, a married man. And a father of six, in that order. He's a native of Florida and served our country in the military for over 21 years. Antoine currently serves as a leadership and management consultant and the founder of the ATAP group, which serves organizations around the country. Now, this is going to be very interesting. Um, This is going to be a conversation. And a lot of what is said today, I think, can pave routes for future conversations, specifically in the topic of race and in the topic of how race can play a role and how these racial conversations can play a role in the church. So with that, Antoine, how are you? Thank you for being on. Um, It's good to have you. I want to start by um, really just asking you a, a general question and just what has it been like in over the last couple of weeks, watching everything play out?
1: Um, I think, man, uh, the first word that comes to my mind is disheartening. Um, I grew up in the South. Uh, As you said, I'm a native of Florida. And so um, there is a culture of African Americans in the South that's different from anywhere else in the country concerning these types of um, images and narratives that we see that is so prevalent in our news and social media today. But uh, it is a pretty familiar story to me, not just in my lifetime, but in my parents' lifetime, in my great-grandparents' lifetime, and it goes back even further in that. So I think the first word that comes to my mind is Uh, it's been disheartening.
0: Hmm. Yeah. It seems like that tone is shared amongst a lot of people. I've been speaking to a lot of my black friends. Um, the term disheartening, there, there is an an error, like a little bit of a, I I know that some people feel encouraged at the conversations, but then some people are having conversations and then feeling more disheartened after the conversations that they're having based on how they're going. Um, Well, why don't you help us understand a lot of the people who listen to this are Cuban and really might find themselves not knowing what to believe because a lot of the I'm going to be I'm going to just be honest. A lot of the, the, the news channels or personalities or public figures that are very pro race relations pro-race restoration uh, tend not to be the people that Cubans would listen to for a variety of good reasons, right? And usually it has to do with how these uh, news channels talk about Cuba itself and some of the misinformation spread there. So I think there's a lot of distrust, but it just so happens that they throw the baby out with the bathwater, um, the baby being race relations in America. And I think oftentimes they don't, they don't realize that, that this is a problem that is prevalent and you don't necessarily have to um, accept the narratives of the person, all the narratives that the person carrying this message believes, you could just carry the message. So why don't you tell us in a quick summary, how, what would you describe as the problem in America today with racism? I know we have slavery, we have segregation. We see all the movies, right? Like we see, we know. That, that's what somebody's saying right now. They're probably listening to this and saying, okay, well, look, I know that racism exists at one point, but we're over that, aren't
1: we? Yeah, you know, um, yeah, I appreciate that question. Um, one of the examples that I use really often uh, to kind of unpack this uh, in a quick way is one of the phrases that I, I hear today is the system is broken. The system is broken. Um, and, and to a great degree, that is true. When you look at the plight of the African-American regarding employment, housing, criminal justice system, the criminal justice system, um, wealth, uh, acquisition, and, and you could kind of go on and on. We see whether it be statistically or through narratives or, or through experience that the system is broken. But I think that only tells half the story. And one of the things that I talk about a lot is that not only the system was broken, is broken, but it was built this way. And I think when you look at it from that perspective, that when, when you analyze the plight of the African-American in this country, we started out being very intentional about African-Americans being treated, for example, as not human, being treated as property. Um, and that went on for centuries, not decades. So I, I think that has to be the starting point and understanding that when you and i also use this example that i think is good if if we take you know ford for example and ford built a car that was strictly made to benefit those of those who are not people of color and eventually ford says well we want this we want this car to be attractive or beneficial to people of color so we're going to take this forward and we're going to modify it. We're going to add a spoiler to it. We're going to put a nice radio in it. We're going to put uh, all of these features of modification to hopefully make it attractive and to benefit people of color. At the end of the day, it's still a Ford and it was still been, it was still built to benefit white people. And, and even, even on top of that, as, the, as the, the owner of the car or the, or the person that the car was actually made for, I'm also in control of how those modifications operate. I choose to turn on the radio. I choose to, you know, use specific modifications to that car. So even though modifications were made, right, the, uh, the power and authority still lies with the person who owns the car. And so, when when you look at it from that perspective, that has to be the starting point of understanding history uh, from of this country from the very beginning.
0: Mm, yeah, that's good. I would I would I would say that's a very good example because the notion of building a car is that you're building something that will then sustainably run over time, and that's how our our country was built. It was built as something that could perpetuate, and when part of that identity. Uh, infused into it is racism and not just the the biases but the actual legislature that would actually um, oppress a specific group of people and that is in the bones and fabric of the country then naturally that is going to sustain itself whether by intent or by accident because it's not just the hardline racists that are continuing the legacy of racism it's people who have been born into it who don't know anything else but to think of um, history as being whitewashed? To think of listen, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who said that he legit—he's a black man. He said I legitimately thought the characters of the Bible were white, and it wasn't until recently I just found out that like none of them were white.
1: <laughs> um, right, right.
0: But but in his mind, he legitimately thought. They were white. And I think there's a variety of reasons for this. Number one, re- representation in, like, the movies. I think we see um, Jesus in movies. Like, you know, Jesus is out here with... He he must have a hair iron somewhere in Bethlehem because, I mean, he his hair is always perfectly ironed and sheen. He's definitely using shampoo. I doubt, I doubt the disciples had shampoo. but But, you know, he's light. You know, he's very... He's fair-skinned. He's, you know... It, it, they forget, like the dude was, the the dude was like gruff, and not only gruff right. in like appearance, but he was he wasn't he wasn't light skinned, and so it, it's it's an interesting way that it that that kind of stuff frames the public's perception of history, and obviously there are really gross examples of history being completely misspoken, like what we know about the founding of this country. Like the slave ownership of our founding fathers is rarely spoken of in school. Uh, Christopher Columbus's um, history—the the, really like—we talk about the Native Americans and what happened there, but we don't talk about it as we, we, we talk about it like something that's like ah, oh, you know, that was just a mistake we made. Whoops, sorry about that. We'll try again next time. You know, a lot of the evils that have occurred um, are are really covered, and so. I I agree I think that the system was created for the specific intent and if left alone will revert to accomplishing its original intention and I know people could probably roll their eyes at that and be like well we're not enslaved you know we're not segregating people and so let me ask you Antoine give me an example of the way the system still works the way it was intended to
1: today? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, well, let's just take the one of the larger systems, capitalism. Um, capitalism has the function where there's rich and there's poor. So when you control from the very beginning of a thing, um, the flow of wealth, right, then you can control which demographic or which people group will remain wealthy for generations, right? And so when you build an economy off the back of slaves, I mean, if you, if you, if you even think about it from this perspective, the first, uh, it's arguable, but the first slave um, came to America somewhere around 1614, 1613. So, so think about that we're talking about 400 years ago still after black soldiers came back from world war 1 and into post great post great depression times we still couldn't get a loan to buy a home we still couldn't and and we know that home ownership in america is the primary way to build wealth and so still you know 70 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, black and brown people in this country were still denied the opportunity to advance themselves, among other things, criminalization. I mean, Mm -hmm. the list goes on, the portrayal in the media, black faces, I mean, the the whitewashing of the media. I can go on for days on how it's so compartmentalized, but it's connected at the same time. So I, I think that's that's one way in understanding is is when you look at capitalism that capitalism runs off this idea that someone has to be poor in order for it to work so the person that's poor is the person that does not have equal access to wealth building
0: Hmm. interesting and so uh to clarify you're saying that capitalism is a system in which because the poor exists um, by well, by way of logical necessity in the system, it would then serve, it would be easy to implement racist principles, economic principles through capitalism. Or are you arguing that capitalism in and of itself is a racist principle?
1: I don't know if it's a racist principle because one of the things about, racism is not only is it built in discrimination, but I have to, I have to literally believe that my race is superior to you, but I also have to have the power to do something about that. And that's as a side note, that's what a lot of people don't understand when they come up with these terms, reverse racism or that, that people of color can can be racist. No, they cannot the, by definition, racism is not just about having discriminatory thoughts or acts towards an individual and thinking that one race is superior over another, but it's also having the power to do something about it. And so can I stop you from getting that loan at the bank? Can I stop you from buying a house in the neighborhood that you want? Can I stop you? And then we look at all these things that have been been instituted by our government, redlining. and I mean, I can I can go on of how you know, racist or discriminatory practices have been implemented even at the federal government level for centuries. Mm. Um, but I, I think to to answer your question, when I when I look at capitalism, it it really it it really starts with who who began the process. If I start something, I'm I'm. On the side that's going to benefit the most from it, you know what I mean? Because, sure. So that's kind of what I was getting at. Hmm.
0: So I, you know, I I tend to agree. I think that, um, I think there there's a little bit of a paradox because the the problems, so like the problem was created by America, but interestingly enough, it ha it can be solved by America. It would just take willing sure. participants. And what's funny is the the same system that would that would oppress people can be used to uplift them. It, it, it's weird. Like capitalism could be a tool for wealth building in the black communities. All it would take is willing participants giving access, right? Um, and it, it's interesting right. how it's interesting how concepts abused, in, specifically. Because here's the thing: nobody would argue this. The the uh, I mean, I don't think anybody would argue the success of capitalism and building wealth I think what we're arguing here is listen not every American not every person in America is able to use of that rich you know deep tool of wealth building because they're already put behind the eight ball I was telling people this actually Absolutely. I was funny it's funny Antoine I was actually having a, uh, I was on a panel yesterday they, they put me on a panel it was weird. <laughs> they, they put me on a panel, and they they, uh, they 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 had me talking about you know these racial issues. It Was at a church at a, at a local youth group. Actually, my brother in law's youth group. I want to shout them out, Life Youth in Spring Hill. Um, and it was funny. Like I got to I got to chime in and and, and and say give an example of, you know how this stuff works out. How like you know how black people have can be targeted by a system. So in Opelika and you know you know you know about Opelika you've, you've, there, there was there was a law that if your pants were sagging you could be arrested like that was wow. a thing yeah that was a thing like they actually had postages i remember seeing these signs and you could be pretty much you can get in trouble for having your pants sagging right so imagine you're just like you're just walking home <laughs> and you know your pants are sagging because you want to wear them that way and you just get arrested. And the notion is that here's an example of how a system criminalizes something that really isn't criminal, but is specific to a certain community. Like, um, right. You know, the guy that works at the bank is probably not sagging his pants, right? Like that's not, that's not targeting him. That's not a, that's, that's not a crime that is trying to say, okay, we have this, you know, we want to, want to be fair and, and, and apply this to everyone. It really is only targeting black males or street identified uh, People right and not even them it could just like literally be targeting anybody somebody somebody who just likes to wear their pants that way And so I was like this is an example of somebody go imagine someone going to jail for something that really shouldn't be a crime Getting put into the system now. He's a felon. You know, obviously I don't think they're I don't think it's a felony to wear your pants low but we, we, we look at drugs and the way drugs was treated and you put someone in the system Usually something happens that they they stay there longer than they should. They get, they, they, they're in the system now. They get out. Really difficult for somebody who's been in the system to find work. I know this because I know people. I know people who went to Bible college with me who had a lot of trouble because of mistakes they made in the past. And these were like theologians. They could have been your theologian, you know, and... Now, wow. and I was like, here's the cycle. You put, them in, you put them in the system for something that shouldn't be a crime. They get out. They can't find work. They can't find legitimate means of employment. Okay, how are we going to make money? Probably something that isn't legitimate. And then now that sends them right back into the system. And now they're called criminals. Now they're called, but really it started with something that they shouldn't have been in jail for. And this obviously dates back a long time. It's hard to make that argument right now if somebody knows that you know doing something is is illegal but a lot of people get into that stuff at least from what i've heard antoine a lot of people get into that stuff because there doesn't seem to be other methods
1: that are legitimate for them Mm. what what do you mean by methods
0: and so you have a lot of people who, who who have said i having trouble finding a job i have to find a way to make money I have friends or family who is making it really fast and making a lot of it doing a particular activity which might be illegal. I'm not going to work at you know the mall if I can make triple the money doing this. Or they get out of they get out of you know jail or they get expelled from school because there's higher expulsion rates for black kids. Usually their their behavior is taken as more you know, with more severity than, than somebody else's misbehavior, they get out of school and they're ex- and they're expelled, and now they're just they have all this time, and whatever their friends are into, they get into, and they see it as the as a legitimate means to make a, like a lot of money, and they don't absolutely. see it the other ways as legitimate. You get what I'm saying?
1: A- absolutely. Let me tell you a story that I think will, or or, or narrative that I think will help um, with that up until 1970 um if you lived in the in urban areas detroit chicago atlanta what have you um you could graduate high school as a certified brick mason welder plumber electrician etc and the factories were in the urban areas they were in the city centers and as why people begin to move out to the suburbs um, so that the factories. But then what the federal government came in and did is they started to do redlining, right? When we start seeing how the, uh, you know, how the taxes, home ownership taxes benefit certain communities, et cetera. You got redlining where there's intentional zoning around certain communities that doesn't give people a color, access to good education. So, so that's the starting point. Well, then you deindustrialize. After the death of Dr. Martin Luther King hmm. in 1970, you start to deindustrialize the city center. So now, black men who we, we we're not that many years past past, you know, desegregation. Hmm. So it wasn't as if black men were poured into colleges before this. They would work at the factory for 30 years and retire. And and if and if I'm honest, you look at the statistics, most of them retired better off than we do today. But that's another story. My point is, you deindustrialize the city center and you have a bunch of uneducated black men who do not have access to loans to buy homes in the suburbs so that they can go and work at the factories that have moved from the city centers out to the suburbs because of redlining. You also have Policing and law enforcement in such a way that you can't be black riding in the wrong neighborhood, especially in the 60s and 70s. Mm. So what happened? You have a generation of black males that are now unemployed unemployed and uneducated. Then what happens? Mm. Crack cocaine. So now you flood the inner city with drugs. And this is this is very interesting to me, and you you may have heard this argument that if you were on the white side of town and you struggled with cocaine, it was a health crisis. Hmm. But if you were on the poor side of town and you struggled with crack, you're a criminal. Hmm. And if you look at all of the laws in the policing from the mid to late 70s, all the way up to the mid to late 90s. Focus on the crackdown on crack from the media from the i was just kind of looking at old newspapers uh from those years and it's all focused on crack and the criminalization of black and brown people you know in those communities so so now so so you see where this started so you have an unemployed community of african americans who are now being criminalized and they're unemployed now you have a drug epidemic now you have campaigns from the you know from the reagan administration to the bush administration to the clinton administration that is all about law and order law and order law and order crack down on crime well you've already criminalized the people group for the last 60 years right so so you know just kind of to back up you know by by 1920 there were just as many black men in the south that were in the penal system to work for free as it was in slavery 70 years prior. Hmm. So just, just trying to give some context of the generational criminalization of black men, but the purpose behind free labor. You still have that today. Look at what's going on today. We, we're we back in another, not, not the coronavirus pandemic, but this drug epidemic of now you have heroin and opioids that's plaguing the white community not criminalized at all it's a health crisis mm. it's a health crisis now you have marijuana that's being legalized in states and like it's now for you know medicinal use etc black people make up 12% of america's population 12.7 to be exact yet we make up 40% of the prison population and 70% of that prison population are in there for non-violent drug charges. Mm. The proof is in the numbers. It just depends on what vantage point you want to look at the numbers.
0: Well, there's only two ways to look at it, and that's the thing. I had a conversation with somebody who said, look, when you see disparities in these issues, you can you can only make two assumptions. The first one this population of people is just inherently evil this population of people is just inherently disposed to doing these things but the second one is there's something that is happening outside of them an external force that is placing them in this scenario and i feel like as christians the 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 ethic christian ethics would 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 say we would believe the the latter we would not assume that there's something inherently evil about The specific person, because we believe all people share the same inherent evil of sin, but that does not mean that we believe that a specific race is lesser than another race when it comes to criminality. And so there's only like you can only really say, okay, either these people are all going to jail at this high number because they're all a bunch of criminals, or there are factors more complicated than that that are pitting them in in a place where that that is going to be a likely outcome for them. I mean, this is why. I mean, a friend of mine was told by a college professor that he was an anomaly. It was like, listen, I've I've read your history. You've told me everything that happened to you as a kid. You should not be alive or out of prison. It was the 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 the, the, the fact that he succeeded was was an anomaly. It was like this is a this is a glitch in the system. How did you get out? You know, he wasn't saying that. They, I mean, uh, she wasn't saying that negatively. She was just saying it's it's incredible, like the the fact that you like given your history I know so many other people who 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 failed to escape the clutches of what you were in but by God's grace you're out and there so there's something that is normal and expected and really almost like a like a like the the relaxed muscle like what the muscle reverts to there's something that is status quo so to speak and it, and I think I think what you're saying is the reason why it has to do with the way the government has interacted with a group of people over decades, well, over hundreds of years, but in recent history, over decades and decades of the ways that they've governed.
1: Absolutely. Again, if if capitalism is where it's at, it's about money. So so I'll say this. I'll say this. I don't believe and I can't prove this, but this is just my own conviction, Um, I don't believe that the slave trade was initiated because of hate. I don't. Sure. Were there some Europeans that maybe hated Africans or people of darker skin complexion? That's in every culture. That's in every era of human history where one people group hated another people group for one reason or another. But I believe based upon my own research and my own convictions, it's about money. You come into a new land and that land needs to be worked in order for you to survive Mm. and you see nothing but dollar signs as you look across hundreds and thousands of acres of potential, what are you going to do? So, when you think of it from that perspective, I think that a lot of the systems that still aid in the discrimination of black people is rooted more in money than it is in hatred, which indirectly, when you do something against another person to gain money, is still hate but 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 it's it's indirect my my primary focus is. How can I maximize whatever it is I can maximize for the purpose of making money. Look at the result. Look at the results. Of the the criminal justice system. Mm. Free labor. Private organizations and government and even even state governments are making money off of prison prison labor. I don't see much different than that than slavery, unless we say, "Well, they deserve to be there because they're criminals." Mm. Yeah, but criminals are still human,
0: right? You know, I and and if you are, go
1: ahead. no no, and if you've never been in a prison, if you've if you've never been like in a prison to see what actually goes on, mm. most most prisons, people live like animals. I mean you literally have people in cages. have you ever have you ever did the comparison between a a dog kennel and a prison? <laughs> I'm sure'm
0: sure there's more similarities than, than, than we'd like to admit
1: exactly and so like so this is and you mentioned earlier and I love to speak on this because I think that uh, this is the vantage point that that has the biggest impact is you know as Christian. Um, And even Christians view these types of issues through the lens of their political ideologies, Mm. through the lens of their own privilege, uh, through the lens of their their own implicit biases, Mm. through the lens of their own advantage. Because the reality is, Alex, that's the American way. Mm. The American way is for me to progress me and mine as far as I can until I die.
0: Yeah, and I think I think Americans would admit that. Americans admittedly believe that, you know, this is the best country in the world. And, you know, in many ways, they're not wrong. And, you know, obviously there are some ways in which this country is, you know, ahead of other countries. But the, the the notion that it's the best country in the world extends past data. It's, it extends past, oh, here's the proof to show you how we're doing better in these areas and these countries. It's more like the American ideal is the best in the world. That's what they say. I think that's what they really get behind, the notion of America um, and all that it stands for, all that people believe it stands for. Exactly. And... And, and you use the interesting term and I want to bring awareness to it because I think a lot of people hear this term. They don't know what it means. I think they they, they, they mistake it for something. So I want you to first define it and then we'll talk about it. What is white privilege?
1: So again, this, this goes back to referencing how the system was built. So whether whether the majority race is white or black or Asian or whoever, if I build a system to benefit my advancement in every areas, I automatically create privilege for myself. It's just as simple as that. that. that is. It doesn't matter what the race is, but it matters who the creator is, right? That I'm the creator of the system, right? It's, it's just like the father. It's just like God. Right? God created man to worship him in spirit and truth for his maximum glory. That makes sense because he created it. Right? Mm -hmm. So the same deal with white people who came to this country, the system was built for them because it it only could benefit them in the beginning. Everyone else were were slaves. So, So you I think, I think we've overcomplicated privilege. Like I have privilege as a black man. I'm, I am, I am easily one of the top richest 10% people in the world. Easily. Hmm. But, but I don't, I don't walk around thinking about, you know, the poor people living in Bangladesh. Why? Because I have the privilege to not do so.
0: Hmm. So you, you, so you your privilege it, it transcends race in many ways, in that it's just the notion. Oh,
1: absolutely. Of not having absolutely to worry about
0: things. That's good.
1: A- absolutely, I can. That's why I can compartmental. I can compartmentalize my life because I have privilege. If if I, I I actually have this conversation with buddies of mine all the time because I've had the privilege in serving in the military to not only travel the world, but I've lived in pretty desolate places and I've lived in pretty great countries from, you know, the UK, uh, I've lived in Honduras, I've lived in Egypt, I've lived in obviously the middle areas of the Middle East in wartime. So I've I've been able, I've lived in Asian countries. So I've been able to see the world with a true worldview. Not a worldview through an American lens. Mm. Right? So, so I understand my bias because I've been able to see it. I'll give you an example. Very simple example. If you are you and I are sitting across from each other at a table, and I have a coffee mug, right? And um right now you're drinking, you're drinking out of that coffee mug and you're right-handed. So the handle is on my left. And you say, well, Antoine, no, the handle's on the right. And I'm saying, no, it's, it's on the left. Clearly, in that moment, we're both right. The only way I'm gonna see your perspective about anything is I come over on your side and see it from your lens. Mm. Once I come, get up and come over to your side, the handle is both on the right. That's so, you know what I mean? So, so my, my point is, all of us have, especially in America, have a level of privilege where we can choose what to be informed about, what to be aware about and what we care about. But if I'm a person living in, you know, you know the 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 slums of New Delhi, for example, guess what? It's quite likely that I'm going to be born in extreme poverty and I'm going to die in extreme poverty. I don't have the privilege to dismiss that. I don't I don't have the privilege, right, to to compartmentalize my life because poverty flows through every area of my life. Education, housing, employment, etc. But in America we can do that. And so everyone in America has a level of privilege, right? Mm-hmm. White privilege though is kind of this overarching um this umbrella over our nation that has permeated our systems uh you could argue intentionally or unintentionally i wouldn't argue it but some people would um that has affected the lives of black people for centuries and and i want to say this before you go to your next question and i want i want your listeners to be able to understand this because i think every one of us can relate to this when you go to the doctor and you have your initial uh, appointment with your doctor, and, and one of the one of the fir- one of the first things they do, and every single doctor does it, is they ask about the medical history of your family. You know, have 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 your mom had diabetes or cancer or heart disease or whatever you know, and then they go on the paternal side. Is anyone you know? dad's mom and dad's dad and they and they're getting all of this this history from you because they understand from a medical and a science perspective that if mom had diabetes and grandmom had diabetes genetically you're at a higher risk of having diabetes and that's something that we need to be mindful of right as you progress you know in your years It's funny that we apply that medically, but we don't do it socially. Because it's true socially, it's true psychologically, Um, even from a psychological perspective. If if I've had a parent that struggled with depression, I'm susceptible to it. God has, that's just how it has been set up. And so when you have a people group that has literally been oppressed, either, either overtly or covertly, for 450 years, and there's an expectation for people to just get over it because I don't see your vantage point. Well, you're not you you haven't lived through our plight either. Right? But but not getting up and coming on the other side of the table to, to just see that the handle is actually on the right side from my vantage point shows a lack of compassion and understanding and actually. A heavy dose of self-righteousness and so I'll, I'll pause there because i can kind of keep going down that rabbit hole
0: that is good stuff and y- you're 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 bringing up an interesting point the importance of going to the other side the importance of actually venturing and, and actually because the thing i find is most people who deny racism exists or most people who 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 roll their eyes at the race narratives um don't have a a a, a plethora of black friends and people they're in relationship with that they generally interact on these issues with. I'm not saying none of them do, but I mean, if I had to you know, survey the majority of people who deny you know, the existence of racism and white supremacy and white privilege, chances are they're not talking regularly with black voices who are ordinarily going to give voice to this plight and a lack of relationship, but a lack of relationship that is not combative. Because the, the, the notion of going to the other side is you're, you're walking side by side with them and looking at the same thing from the same angle, or at least trying to, rather than always engaging the conversation from a combatant point of view. And my thing is, there's a wager involved here. Like if we're wrong, if you're wrong about this, then you're neglecting a really important part of biblical ethics, which is justice. Now, if you're right, then what fear do you have going to that side and looking at that cup? Because if you're right, you're going to see what you saw before. But chances are something will change about the way you see it when you actually talk with people. That's why conversations with you and with others has really helped me with. It's helped me actually because there's some things that I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is going on. But then when I talk to people, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, so it is it is happening. So my biases are right. And then there's things that I'm like, I don't know if this is a thing. And then I talk to people and I'm like, oh, okay, it is a thing. I didn't know that it was a thing. And
1: I, I remember- Absolutely.
0: I remember thinking that white privilege only referred to white people not having to work to be successful, that it was it's harder for black people and that they had to work harder to get where they are. And I can see somebody who is white and was born. Super poor and literally worked for every little thing that they had saying that's nah, that's that's nonsense. White privilege doesn't exist. So what you're saying is that white privilege refers to the things that white people are privileged in not having to deal with, whatever that may be. And it just so happens that in this country, it has to do with race. White people don't have to worry about the color of their skin. They don't have to worry about being marginalized for being white. Whereas uh, also. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Go, go ahead. Uh, also, there's another side to that. Let me be clear about this. I think that there's a lot of hardworking, law-abiding white people in this country. So what I don't want to do is I don't want to paint this picture that white people, you know, just don't go through the same trials or the same issues in life as people of color do. But here's the difference. When you have been able to benefit generationally from wealth building, what happens is that over time you go through the same issues in life white people go through divorces they go through losses of children losses of jobs they they go through the same thing but when you are privileged what privilege does is it builds buffers in between those instances and those events so that you're able to move through them a lot smoother than people of color people of color if i lose my job i'm not going i'm not getting a loan from the bank in my neighborhood in the 1940s if 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 i lose a child i don't have medical insurance to to bury my kid whatever the case may be so the, i think the other side of that same coin is black people had no buffers so when devastating things happen particularly uh unemployment divorce that directly affected the Black family, it was devastating. We we still, as a community, have not recovered from the deindustrialization of urban areas in the 1960s. We have not recovered and the perpetuation of the criminalization of Black men and the law and order campaign that went on for 20 years. And now we have politicians coming out like President Clinton, like Hillary Clinton, you know, even George, George Bush saying, man, we got that wrong. Like we we went too hard in the paint. And now it has devastated a community over the last, you know, 40, 50 years. And we still have the black family still has not recovered because don't don't get it. And, and I want to say this too, because I've, I've been seeing this a lot is we portray Dr. Martin Luther King today in the media and in social media, like he was a liked person. Hmm. America hated Dr. Martin Luther King. Let's not get that twisted. He was, a he was one of the FBI's most wanted men, but I think we portray him as this lovable nice guy because you know he was about nonviolent violent protests and, and I'm about that as well but let's not play as if he was so likable in the 1950s and 60s because that's that's far far from the truth and one of the things one of the things that I think is key as well is who supported the civil rights movement the black family black people funded this movement. Hmm. So, so how do you cripple the Civil Rights Movement? You, we signed this, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 64. Why didn't Dr. King stop fighting for rights after that? Hmm. Why did he get assassinated four or five years later? B- because work still needed to be done. Just because you signed something in the law, doesn't mean it changed, which, which that's proven with the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. You still had people in slavery in Texas 30 years later. So, so laws don't mean a whole lot if nobody's going to actually act on them. So, so my point is, you basically, the, the next goal was we got to take out the black family because the black family is the one that's funding all this. You take the male out of the home, you 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 demoralize, you dehumanize, you criminalize the black male, you cripple the civil rights movement. And that's exactly what happened, my brother.
0: Hmm. And interestingly enough, you know, fatherlessness is usually the thing's people will bring up to say, "Oh, it's not racism, it's not the system, it's it's fatherlessness." And you're you're saying here, which is accurate, that even that
1: was a product of
0: systemic oppression, even that was-
1: Absolutely, hmm. absolutely, bro. Slave owners used to allow, we used to allow slaves to get married and then intentionally sell them apart. Like, like th- this stuff is not hard to understand if you want to. Th- that's really where I think, Alex, the rubber meets the road is that people don't want to understand the plight of African Americans and the oppression that this nation has caused because it 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 you know it it kind of pulls back this layer in the onion that's nasty and rotted that nobody wants anyone to see. Right. And 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 that if if in in from a Christian perspective, if nothing happens unless repentance takes place first. You get nothing from God but but general grace and mercy as he lets the, the sun rise on the just and the unjust, and we can kind of go down that rabbit hole, but my, my point is, is that nothing of real substance, right, in our relationship with Jesus happens unless repentance comes first. And so if we're not willing to be real about and acknowledge what this country has been built on, and, and how that has perpetuated through the centuries and how that has systematically built implicit bias, um, then we're not gonna get anywhere. And, and you even talked about just, you, you were mentioning a, a, a buzzword earlier, I don't think you said it, but proximity. Proximity is huge, bro, because we pretty much develop who we're gonna be, how we see the world from the ages five to 14 hmm. in our adolescence if you grew up in an environment that was only you and your race, how you think, how, you know what I mean? What you're comfortable with, then you're going to see the world through that lens. Right. You you know what I mean? And so that's just, that's how, how we socialize matters. And so if there are listeners out there, man, that, that are saying, man, I, I just don't get it. It could be because there's a lack of proximity also we gotta move past these country club relationships mm. where we just get together and talk about what school our kids go to, what LeBron James did when he when he dunked on somebody last night. You can tell I'm a LeBron James fan. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what? You, we talk about these surface issues, but nobody wants to go deep because reconciliation, bro, is painful. It's messy. And and we we become a culture that is so emotionally driven, and it's based on this this desire to to, to have our own autonomy. We're so emotionally driven. I don't want to mess that up. I I, I don't want to. I don't want friction because because we haven't. Our generation, I don't think, have been really taught things like resiliency and conflict resolution, and how to have a conversation. We say we agree to disagree, but we really don't. Mm. Yeah, well, we agree. So too, I, I so digress, not. but yeah.
0: We agree to not talk about it because we're about to get upset at one another.
1: It's really weird. Absolutely. And and if you can't, and if, and I, I, I've, you know, you and I've had this conversation, and I've said this to my white brothers and sisters, and I've said this to my black brothers and sisters, is that particularly Christian, is that you cannot be a bridge if you're constantly picking a side. Mm. That's we, we, we've, we've got to get off of our sides and become a bridge. Do you have thick enough skin that if one of, and I, I say this to my black brothers and sisters, if one of my my white brothers and sisters come and they say man i really got a question are you a safe place to land where well, well, they can ask a semi-racist question maybe totally innocent but they really want to know so that they can be educated or are you going to jump off emotional anger and say well you should know this and you should do that come on I, I i can expect that from the world i don't expect that from believers and so although i don't feel like african americans should spearhead the reconciliation process. I do think that we have to have a posture that's open to it. And we've gotta be willing to endure the tough conversations, the tough questions that might come off discriminatory or might come off wrong or whatever the case may be and do the tough work, man. I love I love where the scripture says that, that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation and i love this imagery that jesus paints through the apostle paul and he said it should appear as if we live in such a way that god himself is making an appeal through us to reconcile others unto him Mm. that imagery is powerful and i think that every believer has a responsibility to live their life in such a way that when I'm talking to you, when I'm talking to my white brothers and sisters or my black brothers and sisters, am I postured spiritually in such a way that God can make an appeal about his justice, about his righteousness, that we can be reconciled and be brothers and sisters because unity does not mean uniformity. Hmm. We don't have to agree on everything but we must agree on the right thing, we must agree on Jesus and what he represents, and that the Bible is the infallible word of God, and that he's a God of justice, and he's a God of righteousness, right? And he's a God of reconciliation. And we have to fight for those truths to be true amongst us as believers, because the reality is we shouldn't get up in arms when the world acts like the world. But the world is acting like the world because it's an indictment on the church. We are still segregated even in the church. We still have racial disparities, even in the church. We still have discrimination, even in the church. If we don't fix it, the world doesn't have a chance.
0: Hmm. That is good. Man, there's so much there. I I think um, in a future podcast, I'm going to talk about the the reasons that because I think every group of people has a reason that they would reject something like this. Then reject this conversation. I think with Cubans, it has to do with the fear of um, cultural Marxism and socialist thinking. And oftentimes, um, unfortunately, the, the topics of race become meshed with the political topics of socialism. I don't know why, I think there's some history there. I think there's some parallels there, but um, it, it obviously for Cuban Americans, for Cuban Americans who, or Cubans who um, feel as if they want to preserve and protect the capitalist and the most American thing, and, and they, they have a, a generally a favorable view of America because, well, this country did accept them. In, in many ways, I think that in order if everybody's kind of defending their own honor. And they're not realizing that there is no threat that it's not a threat to to observe it i mean i should be an example i mean there's nobody who who champions cuban freedom more than me publicly at least well i'm not going to say there's nobody but i i want there to be nobody that does like my goal is to be the most loud annoying obnoxious and prevalent voice on these issues there's nobody who hates um what socialism has done in cuba more than me yet Yet none of that threatens my ability to be objective about the evils that America has committed and the specific evil of racism that really has, is what built our country. And so it's, it's, it, it takes a certain level of nuance to do that. Um, it takes a little bit of, of – of you have to kind of be very uncomfortable and you're probably going to read things written by people that are – I've read, I've read journal articles that advocate for socialism as the solution to race – um, to these race issues. So, I mean, it's it's not like you're not going to be exposed to some uncomfortable ideas, but you're going to find the truth of the matter and it's going to be better that way because you're going to be able to be a solution, an ally, a friend that um, still holds true to your ideals. And so I think most Cubans would reject this notion because one, they come from a place where everybody's kind of similar culturally, black, white, you know, it doesn't really there, there are obvious there's racism everywhere but when you speak the exact same language same slang play the same games listen to the same music eat the same food it's a little harder to be racist it's at that point it's just elitism and classism whereas in this country the cultural gaps are wider in my opinion and that the, the the yeah. differences are wider and it makes it more difficult to relate to one another and therefore diff- more difficult to understand one another. And so Cubans have a simple-minded view of this. They did work from the bottom up and so they believe, they believe that all you have to do is work hard. They don't have the historical context of government intrusion on said work. And I think it's important Cubans realize that so they can understand and that it doesn't compromise their ideals. They're not going to turn into – right. You know they're not going to turn into socialist leftists because they acknowledge that race is a problem. They're, they're going to actually become more reliable voices on whatever side they land on because they're not denying something that so obviously exists. That's the part that's annoying, is you deny something that's so clearly in our history. It makes you look dumb. It makes you look like you're willfully ignorant.
1: Absolutely, man. Um, I, I fully agree. And, and if I would, if I were to be able to make an appeal. Uh, two sides to the same coin that if if you are not a person of color or if you're not an African American in this country and you're listening to this podcast and you're still kind of on the fence or you, you're wrestling with it or maybe you're just uninformed let me say this on one side of the coin you have the ideals of being American now we have blew those ideals. we just have But the ideals are still good ideals. And and, and I'll say this, one nation under God, and it's talking about the God of the Bible, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. That's not been true for black people ever, ever Mm. in this country. Not not how it's written in the Constitution. Not not how it's not how it's written in policy and law. It's never been true. We want it to be true. Right. We we want that right. So on one hand as an American. You have to ask the question. You know it is liberty and justice for all. Is that happening? Are, Are we indivisible? Are we even under God? And if we're not, I think that there's an individual and a corporate responsibility that comes to making those making that statement true. Right. And and, and then you have the other side of the coin we're Christians, right? And, and I said it, uh, Alex, you said it at the beginning of the call when you introduced me. Notice I was very intentional about saying I'm a Christian before I'm a black man. Hmm. So I don't view the world through the lens, because if 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 all things have been made new the old has passed away that means that we are new creatures in christ which means we are christ followers christians blood block, uh, uh, blood bought blood washed children of god that is first and foremost and that is the lens in which god requires us to see everything everything doesn't mean that we abandon right Um, those other aspects of our life, being married, being a father, all of those things are important, but, but those are not the things in which I see the world through. I see the world through the lens of the word of God. And God has been not only clear, but explicit when he says there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no slave or free, and there is no rich or poor. Hmm. Right. But, but, but that's exactly what our country is today, which is why people are angry. Right. So I think regardless whether you're a a, a non-black person and you're a Christian or not, the the, the principles are the same of how we get, we have to look eternal. And for believers, this is what I would say, is that if, if you're struggling with this, if you're struggling with having compassion, having understanding, getting up and walking on the other side of the table, To see a different vantage point, then my friend, I would say this to you that that is a vertical issue, not a horizontal one. Mm. That is an issue that you have with Jesus, not with black people. Um, and that is what God is calling you to is to pray for his heart. Every time Jesus was, was moving, I don't know how much time I got Alex, but every time jesus was moved to compassion Mm. he acted Mm. every single time and the one time that we saw jesus upset in the bible he turned over tables Mm. you go to mark 11 i love this this imagery and i'll say this man and and i'll be done uh, unless you have any more questions uh, or thoughts or whatever but you go to mark 11 i love this imagery where they come into Jerusalem, and Jesus obviously comes into the temple in, the, in, the, in late in the day, and the Bible gives this imagery that he comes in and he takes some time to analyze what's going on in the temple. He, he, some translation says, he looked at everything carefully, at everything carefully, hmm. but he didn't say anything because the Bible says it was late in the day, so they had to leave. And they went and left and you know in between that is when you know when he you know where everything happened with the fig tree on their way back out out of jerusalem and then he comes back the next day and he comes in there and he goes off Hmm. turning over tables the whole now you know you know the story of what jesus did in the temple and i said hmm what's going on here jesus was he was furious at the injustice that was taking place and we know it was injustice because he called it a den of thieves so we know that somebody was being cheated or stolen from or deceived and what was happening is that they were selling in the temple they were they were selling people um um, you know sacrifices right above you know way above market price Telling, they was telling some people that the sacrifices that they had brought with them wasn't good enough. I mean, it, it was a whole scam. And the Pharisees was in on it. Tell you how that? How you know that to be true. They came in and was listening to Jesus basically scald these guys after he didn't turned over tables and just like, this is a den of thieves. This, and then he goes into quoting Isaiah 56 or 57, I can't remember. And it says, This house should be a house of prayer. We normally stop there, Alex, when we quote the scripture, but it actually says this should be a house of prayer for all nations. Hmm. What was happening is that people who didn't look like me, think like me from the place that I'm from, were not in proximity to me, were coming in to offer sacrifices and worship God, and they were being cheated on their way in the door. The injustice in that sounds familiar, and and yeah. and, and so, and, and so Jesus was upset at that. But here's here's the key that I want I want us to hear, man. and I think it's so important. the Pharaoh, The Bible says that the Pharisees begin to plot to kill Jesus at that moment. Hmm. Wow. Think about the think about the weight of that. These are righteous men. These are men that know the law. They know the Torah, yet they were cheating people in the temple. Hmm. They were committing these atrocities in the temple. Jesus exposes it and instead of, the, instead of them repenting and changing from their ways, they say, we gotta get rid of this boy. He messing up our game. Brother, that is, the, that is a biblical image of privilege.
0: Sheesh. Yeah, I think that's a great place to stop that. I, that is that I think that that illuminated that passage in a way I've never read it. That's powerful. Man. Yeah, man. Well, Antoine, thank you for being on. I appreciate the insight that you brought. Is there anything you want to leave the audience with before you go?
1: If you are absolutely if you're one of my white brothers and sisters or my brothers and sisters of any race that that really doesn't understand, there is now a plethora of, um, resources, uh, for you to become educated. Uh, please do so so that you can fight for justice, but more even more importantly for reconciliation so that we can have the country. I believe, I believe we all want, um, and if you're my black brothers and sisters be a bridge be a landing spot for white people in your proximity co-workers bosses neighbors what have you in-laws whatever it is to have those tough conversations so that we can move the needle towards reconciliation
0: good stuff antoine uh thank you for being on and thank you for those who are listening um We will leave it at
1: that, and we'll see you next time. All right, my brother. I appreciate it. Take care.